This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Hi, everybody. This is Joan Newberger. I'm your host for this episode of 15-Minute History. And we're very happy today to have as a guest in our studio, Sheila Fitzpatrick. Sheila is one of the preeminent historians of Russia and the Soviet Union. She is the Distinguished Service Professor Emerita from the University of Chicago and Professor of History at the University of Sydney. And she also has a connection with UT Austin because she taught here in the History Department from 1980 to 1989. So Sheila, welcome to 15-Minute History. Thank you. We're going to talk about 1917 and... This year is the centenary, 2017, 100 years after 1917, and there have been a lot of new books and a lot of conferences all over the world looking back at 1917 and trying to see if there's something new that we can say about it, trying to understand its impact on the history of the 20th century. We're not going to focus on the events of 1917 because, in fact, when we started 15-Minute History, two of our first episodes did just that. So I encourage you to listen to episode one and episode seven if you want the history of 1917. We're going to look back and and see what historians have been saying about the events of the revolution during this centenary year. So let's start with 1917 itself. And what kinds of things are new or interesting or what kinds of things are people writing about 1917? How are people representing the revolution today? You'd expect given it's a centenary, that there'd be some kind of excitement and people would be meditating on the significance of the experience of the Russian Revolution. And while that has been true about its global impact, its impact on Russia has uh, not provoked the same kind of excitement in historians. In fact, there's a strange tendency in the recent literature to, to say two things. First of all, the Russian Revolution was a failure. Now, in a sense, all revolutions are failures. But failure, even in the Cold War, we didn't run around saying it was a failure. People then, I think, saw it as a success in its own evil terms Mm -hmm. Uh, in in the US. That would be the standard. But somehow we're all talking about failure and, well, perhaps I should exempt myself from this, but uh, the the field in general. In what way is it seen as a failure? Well, the, the word, it seems almost as if the word has to be used And the basic justification of that is, I think, that it led to Stalinism. It led to Stalinist repression, and therefore its ideals were betrayed and so on. So that's the first thing. Second thing, which is in a way even odder, is it didn't matter very much. In other words, people are treating it as not all that significant. And there's a bunch of books, some of which give the impression that they were written because they were commissioned, you know, there was a commission to write for the centenary. And others of which are basically dealing with 1917 from every angle except the revolution itself. I'm thinking there of Mark Steinberg's, uh, he's got a nice 1917 book. Basically, the revolution itself is not his subject, the things that we didn't notice when we were concentrating on the revolution. So we get empire, so we get the church, so we get women, so we get everyday life, we get crime on the streets, all the things that indeed belong to the year 1917, but are not part of the revolution per se. So you mentioned that uh, it's the international impact that seems to be most interesting to people today. Are historians arguing that it was important globally or You said earlier that a lot of historians are saying it wasn't that important. 
No, I think there's a distinction between historians who are writing about the Russian Revolution and its impact on Russia, or perhaps one should say on the former Soviet Union as a whole, and people who are writing about its impact on the world. And when they're writing about its impact on the world, I mean, a few people are doing a sort of real overview, and they tend to say, yes, it had a big impact. But other people are working from a, um, a base of specialization in a particular place and say, well, all sorts of people were moved by the Russian Revolution, came and observed part of it, took back to their country a message and continued to be influenced by it. Mm-hmm. This, of course, particularly third world, but not only. Mm-hmm. In Russia today, they're having a very hard time deciding how to respond to the revolution. It's been very muted. How mm-hmm. do you explain that? Well, I found that fascinating, actually. I was trying to follow that from, you know, the lead up to the revolution. And so I see they're being very late to announce what they're going to do. And then in December, Putin says, well, he, well, he creates a committee mm-hmm. to, in pre- December to make pre- 2016. December 2016 to make preparations for something. He didn't make it very clear what kind of celebration, but some marking of it. And then nothing much happened. And then in March, you got this rather roundabout statement coming from a Putin representative speaking to the New York Times, not to any Russians, saying, well, we're, we're going to sit this out. We're actually not going to have a celebration of the revolution and we're not going to have an official line on it, which in a way is, of course, great. The Russians have been so bad over the years of having official lines on things, but this time not. So I had to look into whatever Putin had said that would shed a light on this because I had previously thought, I think without really examining, and I'd, I'd assumed that he would be somewhat in favor of the revolution. After all, he's somewhat in favor of Stalin. And normally, if you're somewhat in favor of Stalin, you're somewhat in favor of Lenin. And was a member of the Communist Party. And was a member of the Communist Party and was brought up like that. So it turns out, but as I see, his his attitude is quite, um, it makes sense. Stalin he likes as a nation builder. And that's, you know, I mean, he's basically a nationalist. And uh, so Stalin, like Peter the Great, is on the right track. Uh, But you can't say Lenin, well, I suppose you could make an argument that Lenin is a nation builder, but he was an internationalist. um, Building a nation was not at all his thing. Really destroying a state structure was much more. So it makes sense, Putin's attitude. He, He also claims to feel that Lenin gave too much freedom to the national republics that made up the Soviet Union to secede. Now, most people wouldn't have thought that he gave them all that much freedom to secede. But at any rate, he was not as tough as in the early 20s Stalin wished to be. So what Putin said, well, Lenin, by inserting a provision that the republics could leave the Union, he, quote, laid a time bomb under the Union and it exploded after 74 years. So Putin wants to trace a history that goes back past Lenin to the history of um, nation building in Russia and sort of play down the the role of 1917? I think so. What he said about 1917 and also what his Minister of Culture has said is that basically revolutions are not good. They are disturbances. uh, They destroy the fabric of societies. They turn brother against brother. They cause endless misery. So he's tended to talk about the revolution as a time of suffering for the Russian people. Mm-hmm. Now, you started off by asking us to think about um, whether the revolution was a failure. 
do you see it as having been a success in some ways? Well, I mean, there are different ways of going at this. On the one hand, I think that all revolutions are by definition failures in that uh, they are finite. I mean, you can't keep on being a revolution forever. If a revolution takes, it gives way to something that isn't revolutionary. In other words, I see the revolution as the, as the period of destruction, basically, and then, you know, you've got to get, get real after a while if you've succeeded in taking power. Right, it's, uh, it's easier to destroy than to... Than right, to rebuild, right? But but then the rebuilding is non-revolutionary right. in a certain sense. So you can make that argument in terms. I mean, it's very difficult to know what exactly are we saying if we if we talk about revolutionary success or failure. You can approach it by saying, well, were the revolutionary goals fulfilled? But then there are always so many revolutionary goals, and some of them are never going to. Be, I mean, freedom, equality, end of exploitation. I, I mean. These are not going to be fulfilled in any revolution. As, as far as the Russian is concerned, they had a notion that if they nationalize and create a socialist economic base, which in turn will generate a superstructure which will be socialist. And they did that. I mean, they created, they changed the economic base. Now, whether they, I, I, I wouldn't want to push the argument further and say that the rest of their expectation was correct, but insofar a major aim on their part was to create a new governmental institutional structure which they thought would facilitate the emergence of socialism, and they did that. Now, another way of thinking about their aims is that basically the, a lot of their understanding of socialism was rather like what we sometimes call modernization. In other words, they, they wanted to develop the country quickly, and that means economically and uh, with things like popular education, because that's also a prerequisite and in the pre-war period in particular, they did that with some success. But talking about success or failure, it also depends what's the point of vantage at which you make this judgment. Because if we're going to talk about the Bolshevik Revolution as a sort of modernization revolution, then I think if you take the mid-30s, it's looking reasonably good. But you jump forward to the, let's say, the 1970s, after the information technological revolution has convinced people that, that bureaucratic socialism isn't conducive to innovation, technological innovation. So then it looks quite different. And what used to be the great modernization achievements, all that smokestack industry, it starts to look more like a blight on the environment than, than an achievement. But I guess I'd see on that line that they succeeded in accomplishing a modernization which now looks old-fashioned. Right. So in your book on the Russian Revolution, you argue that the the real transformation wasn't 1917 or the new economic policy, but the first five-year plan, the mm -hmm. Stalinist first five-year plan. Has anything changed your mind? Um, does that still seem to be the major revolutionary transformation? Maybe this is simple-minded, but I do see Lenin as doing the political revolution and Stalin as doing what he understood to be the economic revolution. Now, the trouble with saying something like that is that it always is taken to mean that you think, therefore, it's a good thing. That's not what I'm saying. I'm trying to put it in terms of the revolution itself in its sense of objectives. Yeah, that, I mean, that's a really important distinction to emphasize, that it was successful in the terms that they set out for themselves. Right, because after all, I'm not, <laughs> I wouldn't make a revolution. <laughs> <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> Thank you very much, Sheila. 
For a transcript of this episode, images, and links to more information, visit our website at 15minutehistory.org. That's the numerals 15minutehistory.org. You can access our full catalog of episodes free of charge at our website and through the iTunes U app for iOS or the Tunes Viewer app for Android. You can also access the 10 most recent episodes through the Apple Podcasts app, Google Play Podcasts, Stitcher, and Overcast. 15-Minute History is produced in partnership between Not Even Past and the Hemispheres Outreach Consortium. Our executive editor is Joan Newberger, and our technical editor is Christopher Rose. Our audio engineers are the awesome folks in the Liberal Arts Instructional Technology Services, Jacob Weiss, Morgan Honecker, Will Kurtzner, Samantha Skinner, and Michael Heidenreich. Special thanks also to Michael DeLeon, iTunes U Site Administrator with Project 2021 and Educational Innovation. The University of Texas at Austin is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in episodes of 15-Minute History do not represent the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.